Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Joining me on the line is one of the co-artistic directors of Western Edge Youth Arts, Tariro Mavondo, who joins us to tell us kind of about the impact that COVID-19 has had on their organisation, but also some of the things that they're doing behind the scenes. Tariro, welcome to Triple R. Thank you for having me, Richard. Very great pleasure. Now, as the name suggests, Western Edge Youth Arts, working across Melbourne's western suburbs with young people. How has COVID impacted on your work? Because you'd work normally with hundreds of young people across the year, ensuring that kind of their own voices are being heard creatively and artistically. I'm guessing that your programming has had to adapt pretty quickly to the pandemic. Yeah, so it was pretty clear. So we have um, core programs. So we go into schools as well as community centres and then we have our own um, internal way of program, professional development program. And so we were working with our six young people who um, have showed a passion and commitment to uh, to pursuing um, a career in the creative uh, industries. And so with them, it became... So we were... We were meeting with them regularly. Um, they were they had to uh, attend masterclass series, and then we had one session where we would then um, sort of incorporate what they've learned um, towards devising a work. And so, when COVID hit, it became pretty clear that the young people were feeling super like um, anxious about. Um, life in general, about the planet, about the world, about themselves in it. And so for us, um, we thought it was absolutely uh, necessary to create something um, online for them. Um, And so that was the very first program that we uh, reimagined online and then um, we sort of went into a bit of a... (laughs) We went into machine uh, mode and so it sort of linked up with uh, different... Um, arts companies, youth arts companies uh, nationally, and we had uh, focus group Zooms about troubleshooting, uh, what challenges we might uh, face, reimagining programs online, and so we went through our, we created our online safety uh, child and young person policy, and then we trained all our um, all our staff in Zoom and Microsoft Teams, and uh, we had a play to just sort of explore what the um, what the possibilities of uh, of expressing um, on, um, artistically online is and that went really well and so yeah we've managed to uh, reimagine all of our programs online and we are receiving a much smaller um, attendance rate but the young people who are turning up and showing up um, absolutely are loving it and um, they've expressed that uh, it's been great uh, during this period to have um, somewhere to just sort of express um, their ideas of what's going on for them. Now, one of the things that I wanted to pick up there, uh, the fact that you were talking about consulting with and working with other youth uh, arts companies around the country. How yeah. how resilient is the, the youth art sector, the youth theatre sector at the moment? Because certainly earlier in the year, um, Western Edge Youth Arts had some great news. You got uh, Australia Council, recurrent Australia Council funding as an organisation for the next four years for the first time as a company, I believe, which is yeah, fantastic. Right. A bittersweet kind of uh, funding announcement because as you gained funding, other youth 
theatre companies lost funding, and we know that that's through no fault of the companies involved, but because the Australia Council's funding is just has been cut and cut by the federal government, and there's just not enough money to go around. But talk about the the, the youth art sector generally, both here in Melbourne about with the work that you do in the western suburbs, and then the sector more broadly. How strong? How resilient? How kind of vital is the youth art sector in Australia? It is a total, it's devastating um, over the years seeing how uh, the youth art sector has just kind of been demolished um, and there isn't actually a lot of uh, resources um, uh, being put towards uh, youth theatre and it's a real shame because actually um, that's where really I think it's really um, a sustainable space where we're hiring, um, you know, uh, uh, artists from the independent sector. Um, we're linking in with um, main stage theatre companies as partnerships. And the young people really uh, have this untapped genius and they've got a lot to say. And I think in terms of uh, reimagining um, um, leadership, I think we can see globally that uh, youth movements, uh, particularly towards climate change and climate uh, advocacy, um, they are at the forefront of that. And um, I guess at WEA, we really believe that um, our young people are the change uh, for a better, fairer, more equitable, uh, more sustainable um, sector. So, uh, yeah, I think it's a real shame that um, there isn't something that uh, allows the youth art sector um, to, to be stable and to be preserved. I think it's an absolute uh, necessity and uh, essential. I think um, arts sector in general is resilient um, and I think part of the concern or part of the problem is our resilience in a way. It's like we can make work um, uh, with very small funding but uh, in a way I think um, that's kind of a perception um, and we need to kind of um, dismantle that perception because I think it's, um, it's, it's dangerous. We do need uh, our youth art sector reinvigorated and um, resuscitated because it is absolutely uh, where we should be investing in. Certainly in terms of investing in the future of the arts generally, the young people that you work with at Western Edge Youth Arts and that uh, the young people who are at St Martin's here in Melbourne as well, for example, uh, Australian Theatre yeah. for Young People in Sydney and so on, these are the future makers, the people who, yeah. who are going to be leading our sector in kind of the, the decades to come. Now, you used the phrase reimagining leadership a moment ago and I wanted to pick up on that because... Uh, at Western Edge Youth Arts, you're the co-artistic director. So the fact that there's kind of there's two of you kind of leading mm. the company creatively uh, is mm. in itself a reinvention. And you're also, uh, I understand, trying to find a way to break down the the kind of traditional hierarchic structures that dominate mm. in the art sector. And I'm really keen to talk about that in a little bit of detail because certainly um, that hierarchy has in the past meant that powerful men have been able to get away with kind of absolutely vile behaviour because they are considered to be senior artists, for example. Um, mm. But it also then kind of reinforces the the inequities uh, that exist throughout our society. So how and why are you kind of trying to change this hierarchic model at Western Edge Youth Arts? 
Yeah, I guess I started off, you know, I graduated uh, from uh, the Bachelor of Dramatic Arts, it was called at that time, a BCA. And as a um, woman of colour, creative and artist, uh, I was struggling um, to sort of um, find my way through the industry and um, had a few breaks, um, you know, have performed in um, um, uh, main stage shows now. But I just realised that for me, um, representation and visibility is only one part and it seems like that's the part that we're concentrating um, too much on um, because when you look at who's um, who are in the core staff of a lot of main stage theatre companies, you look at who's making the decisions. Yeah, it's not a uh, it's not a accurate um, representation of what Australia looks like today. And so, um, for me, it became really clear that um, I could actually make a positive uh, impact um, in a leadership position as a woman of colour. And so that was a big decision for me to make and um, the best decision. And so uh, originally, actually, me and Penny weren't, uh, weren't going um, for co-artistic director together. It was just a, um, just artistic director. And then pretty quickly, um, we realised the power and the strength in numbers, right? We realised, actually, this is an opportunity where we can explore what it is to uh, create a, um, actually a fully lateral structure. And so we're kind of breaking that, that down very slowly. So we've restructured, uh, we've done a, um, re- a governance restructure where at the very core of our, so instead of, in, uh, of top-down, at the very core, and it's a circular uh, so at the very core of our um, um, uh, focus is our young people and the communities they're part of. And then um, as, as it slowly branches out, so we've, um, we're going to hire a resilience and wellbeing um, officer because we realise that specifically with the young people we work with, um, yeah, we need to train our staff um, and our young people in um, trauma in uh, trauma-informed practice um, and yeah it became pretty clear that just we need a we need more more people with uh, diverse specializations is actually um, and just breaking down the top-down structure just feels a lot more uh, I think equitable and a lot more inclusive and intersectional that's where we can really start to um, uh, reimagine language because a lot of even the word youth um, when we have conversations with the young people, they hate being called uh, youth because, unfortunately, of the negative stereotype that um, that uh, the media portrays youth to, to behave like, so they don't want to be associated with that term. And so we're really uh, working on, um, yeah, making them the core and the centre of our organisation where they're the ones who we protect and we broker relationships to make sure that the relationships that they're entering in um, are mutually beneficial, mutually respectful, um, and uh, that everyone is clear that uh, these young people have a lot to say and, and are actually experts at lived experience in a myriad of different ways. Um, yeah, so that's the kind of thinking behind that. If you've just tuned in, my guest is Tariro Mavondo, who's the co-artistic director of Western Edge Youth Arts. We're just touching base to see what the company are up to and see how they're evolving. Uh, there's some pretty significant structural issues uh, that the art sector needs to address uh, and over the last kind of 
10 to 15 years, we've certainly seen a, a much greater grappling with an awareness of uh, kind of misogyny and sexism in the sector and the and slowly breaking down kind of some of the gender inequities that have plagued the arts. We're also seeing um, a much more significant discussion uh, about the importance of um, safe working environments in the arts, and that can mean both culturally safe working environments uh, and also kind of psychologically safe environments. The arts sometimes can uh, brush off the, the impact of trauma. If you're acting in a play, for example, uh, in which you are required to embody kind of trauma on stage night after night after night after mm. night. In the past, that's kind of been brushed away. You're just supposed to deal with it and get on with it. How important is it for, for you uh, and Penny, your co-artistic director, to ensure that the young people you're working with uh, are both culturally and mentally safe when they're making work with the company? It is so important. And I think what um, uh, the other co-artistic director, Penny Harpin, has managed to do is a brilliant um, model um, and it's, I think, three years in its run with uh, the Up Next Masterclass series where uh, we invite, um, I guess, the boldest, what we, who we think are the boldest and most courageous sort of artists in the sector, and we invite them to facilitate three-hour um, masterclasses um, in the evening. And, um, and, and it's a widespread. So Rani Pr um, Pramisti, she ran um, a session on how to be a pragmatic artist and unfortunately, we had um, we we had talked to Sophie Ross and EJ about uh, running a, a session on safe theatre. So that's in the pipeline. Um, hopefully, next year they can run that. But we actually realised how absolutely important it is because um, for me, I think at BCA we had one we had one session on um, how to how to. Um, be safe. Um, ask permission if you're uh, about to enter into an, an intimate scene and create boundaries. But that was one session, and so I think um, that's not enough. It has to be absolutely integral into um, a training uh, in, in a training institution. Um, that should be like a weekly session, um, so everyone kind of um, is fueled up and ready for the industry, and they know their rights. So, um, and that's not just in terms of. Um, I think gender, I think it's in terms of um, all sorts of um, marginalised groups. I think um, we need to see more and more um, representation on all levels, um, creatively, on the leadership um, uh, team. Um, I think uh, a lot of people living with disabilities, uh, a lot of trans people are left out of the conversation. Um, yeah, it's. I think... Um, for me, I see what the future is, is a much more inclusive sector. And I think uh, the art, absolutely, because of our resilience and the fact that we, um, we imagine possibilities that seem pretty um, impossible, I think, uh, and we make them possible, I think it's a great um, space. We can be the leaders um, of that. Yes. Not just tokenistically, but actually really. Um, and that's like uh, really looking deeply at structures and how we can become more inclusive, which is a lot of work, but, um, but it's exciting work. And I think, um, uh, and I'm hopeful that it's, it's a possibility. 
Absolutely. I mean, the arts is where imagination becomes real. So if we can imagine a more kind of open, uh, kind of diverse artistic sector uh, that in, in which stories that for, for a long time have not been heard are being listened to, are being celebrated and explored, and similarly with uh, kind of artists of many, many diverse backgrounds who I imagine uh, are very well represented amongst the young people who uh, are involved with Western Edge Youth Arts, given your location in the, the, the culturally diverse Western suburbs of Melbourne. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I guess our ethos and our philosophy is any young person that um, enters our space, we work with you. You come as you are, however you identify. Um, uh, and that's something that's really beautiful. And it actually allows us to unpack and name elephants in the room that ordinarily in a room, certainly I haven't, um, I haven't really had that much experience where we're unpacking everything. Um, and so in our check-ins, uh, we started um, practicing positionality as well as saying our pronouns. And I think that's absolutely vital, actually, um, for all of us to understand where we are positioned in society. And so that's around um, naming your class privilege, naming your, um, naming your uh, able body privilege, naming your um, gender privilege, um, and also your, um, your uh, I guess, your... Um, how you're being oppressed. And so we all kind of hear where everyone is, how they see themselves, um, and we can start from a really, um, I think, authentic uh, and real place. As a final question, uh, Tariro, for anybody listening who is living in the Western suburbs, who uh, have young people in their lives, whether uh, they're the, the as children, whether they're somebody they're caring for, uh, if there are young people listening who want to get involved in Western Edge Youth Arts, what's the best way for them to get involved and what's coming up that they can participate in? Mm. So the best way to get involved is to go onto our website um, or onto which we're revamping. Um, uh, that's a work in progress, but um, yeah, that's the best place to contact us, which is uh, westernedgeyouthart.org.au, um, and our um, program uh, that's happening right now is online um, community youth theatre program. So we've got one um, based in St Albans Edge, one in Footscray and one in Wyndham. Um, but obviously they're all online. And instead of a um, theatre production this year, we're going to make a film. Um, with everybody that's involved, obviously um, keeping in line with social distancing and whatever the restrictions um, happen to be. But that's exciting um, that we're finding, yeah, very new ways um, of, of, uh, of engaging and creating. It's um, super exciting. And if also, if you just want to, um, as a young person in the West, if you just want to um, check us out, uh, Leading Ensemble will be doing a social distanced um, theatrical multi media performance um, in September and so that's a good way to kind of um, feel the vibe and see if it's for you. Uh, for more info jump online westernedge.org.au to check out what uh, the activities at Western Edge Youth Arts uh, you can also check them out on Facebook and on Instagram and I look forward to hearing more about that film later in the year. Yeah, thank you, Richard. Oh, I should mention also we're on the hunt for a general manager <laughs> as well. So if you think you'll be a good fit in terms of um, 
um, community psychology, in terms of intersectionality, um, in terms of lateral structures. If that's something that resonates with you and you have that skill set, please, please, please apply. Um, yeah, we're ready to fly and work with uh, whoever wants to work with us, really. <laughs> Fantastic. So, uh, as, as you just heard, looking for a general manager if you've got the skill set required and the, the right mindset as well from everything you've, mm. uh, I've been discussing with Tariro Mavondo, the co-artistic director of Western Edge Youth Art, apply. And also if you're a young person living in the Western suburbs who wants to get involved with kind of theatre and performance uh, and the making of art, check out Western Edge online, westernedge.org.au for more information about the organisation and their activities. Tariro, thank you so much for joining us here at Triple R. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, a pleasure Richard. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. Now, on the show over the last several weeks, we've been checking in with different arts organisations who are planning to reopen or actually reopening. The galleries and museums are getting in first because, let's face it, it's a bit easier to navigate people into a gallery and out again as opposed to seating people in the theatre when physical distancing means we need to still kind of be very careful about the number of seats and people sitting who next to who. But the latest gallery to have reopened uh, as of yesterday, I do believe, was Blindside in the Nicholas Building in Swanson Street in the city. Martina Copley is the gallery coordinator and artistic director of Blindside and joins us to let us know what's going on. Martina, how challenging has it been to navigate all the requirements around reopening? Oh, hello, Richard. Hi. Um, it's actually really good to be open again. It's a really good feeling. Um, we've worked pretty hard um, to to support our artists from our 2020 program to continue to create the work and to deliver some, you know, platforms for them in order to share the work. Um, everyone's been in the same situation. I have to thank the artists. It's a, it's um, it's quite incredible their resilience and their ability to shift. Um, you know, the orientation of their of their work at quite short notice. We've also had some support from City of Melbourne with their COVID arts grants and quick response grants that go directly to artists in order to assist artists to develop work for online platforms. So, yes, with the board and, um, and uh, uh, Blindside Artistic Directors have worked really hard alongside all the other ARIs doing the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, one of the things, obviously, for... Uh people attending Blindside, I guess one of the, ch the first challenges to negotiate, uh, given that you're on level seven of the Nicholas building, is just the capacity of the kind of elevator alone. Like you can't suddenly squeeze 15 people into the elevator to all go up and visit Blindside together. No, well, the building's um, provided hand sanitizer at the elevator, so when you get there, you can sanitise your hands. And there are restrictions, of course, to the number of people who are allowed in each elevator at one time. Um, and uh, we have put in a protocol in place for Blindside for, for the artists, for our installers, for our um, interns and visitors uh, to respect, obviously, respect the social distancing. So we've capped visitor numbers to 10. Um, we also have the reporting measures in place, so everyone will be asked to email Blindside with their contact details. So we have that record in any case that it's needed. Um, and we've got hand sanitizer going in the gallery. There's nothing that you can pick up anymore in the gallery. All information is online. So people are welcome to come um, and, you know, enjoy the experience of actually looking at some work. IRL, as they say. Which I've already had the experience of at a different gallery. And it was, I have to say, it was such a relief to be looking at 
physical object on a wall rather than through a screen. It's as much as I've uh, kind of ad admired all the different artists and organisations who've said, right, we need to adapt, we want to keep presenting work, let's do it online. Um, there's nothing like actually being in a physical space and sitting and looking at work. Uh, staring at a screen gets quite tiring after a while, so the actual opportunity to look at actual work in a gallery, it, it made my heart sing, I have to say. So <laughs> given that Blindside reopened its doors yesterday, did you have visitors from the get-go yesterday? Oh, we've had a few visitors yesterday. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how we go as we, um, you know, continue to, to open. Usually when um, exhibitions first open, it's quiet. But um, we've got a couple of shows in there at the moment. Uh, one is uh, Moving Image and Sound, uh, it's called Tertulia, and it's um, curated by uh, uh, Claudia and Carla, who are based in Australia and in Mexico. So Carla's still in Mexico at the moment. So it brings together artists working with moving image from both countries, just to look at that, those ideas of sort of artistic economies and translation. And in Gallery 2, there's a solo exhibition by Emma, Emma Hamilton, which is photo-based. Um, Emma went on uh, to... Um, Antarctica on a residency, a big pun to Iceland on a residency, um, and was interested in this idea of core sampling, um, and so translated that into a kind of image-based work based around mapping. So there's the physical object going on and there's the moving image going on. And I have to say, I don't think it's an either-or situation. The... the um, the experience of, of exhibition, but also um, the wonderful opportunity for artists to play if they want to um, in the digital realm and, you know, um, maybe expand their practice in that way. I think um, most artist-run spaces are looking to develop and continue both of those platforms wherever we can as, as artists demand, really. Well, it's certainly uh, been a really fascinating opportunity, as you say, for artists to evolve their practice for some kind of moving into an area they've not worked in before, such as uh, kind of uh, video and digital art. For other people, it's an opportunity to kind of further advance the practice in a field they're already working in. But it also then serves to make uh, artworks more accessible for audiences who, for whatever reason, uh, kind of maybe uh, uh, a mobility impairment or being... Uh, uh, immune compromised, for example, people who may not have previously felt safe getting on public transport and going to visit a gallery can now access work much more easily. Do you think that's something that the artists involved with uh, Blindside will continue to work with and that indeed Blindside itself will continue to focus on in the future, that issue of accessibility through digital access? Um, I think it's important, um, and certainly, um, you know, we're supported by City of Melbourne. It's very important to City of Melbourne um, to expand audiences in that way and, you know, allow for all kinds of engagement with creative work and creative practice and creative thinking. Um, I have to say, though, you know, not all artists respond in the same way to these restrictions. Not all artists want to shift their practice. Um, many want to continue doing what they're doing because they're invested in that. You know, that's what they do. Um, many artists have um, been unable to create work because they're in care caregiving roles. Um, it's been very interesting. During the closure, Blindside has run what we called isolation residencies with one artist in the space at a time. Um, we had Benjamin Woods, MJ Flamiano, um, Amara Rahim, who's performance-based, and Simone Nelson. And it was very interesting for me just to see how each of those artists, in their own way, um, was responding to those new conditions, but also wanting to continue in some way, continue the practice. 
Um, so it has been challenging, I think, for artists this time. And certainly artists who's, uh, who are interested in international collaboration as well, which, uh, to mm. come back to... Uh, uh, to Julia, the exhibition that's on at the moment, the uh, exhibition of moving image artworks. Yeah. Given that this is kind of uh, uh, kind of looking at, I guess the the experience of artists in Spain and Australia, for example, in Mexico. In Mexico, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, mm-hmm. the um, the the fact that at the moment those kind of collaborations are so much more difficult and challenging. We've seen the Australia Council temporarily suspend residency programs and so yes. forth in order to reinvest funding into emergency funding support measures. How, how important is it f- to have an exhibition like Tertulia, which shows what artists were capable of before we were all locked down? Well, I guess the digital platforms, you know, open up that, that avenue for us. And we've always, um, Blindside's always kind of tried to um, to have that kind of international exchange because it's costly for artists um, and for for um, uh, uh, not-for-profit spaces to, to, to facilitate that kind of exchange. The screen is really a very viable option. So we have um, a satellite program and, a, and an online video program called Play, um, and in both those instances, you know, we can open up to um, international artists and international works. The satellite program is online but also goes to public screens around the country. So that seems to be for Blindside where we're focusing. Um, I think um, we also have in the 2020 program um, a partnership with um, some sound artists in um, in Auckland, in New Zealand. And... Um, they're going to shift their program for us to to an online program for this year, and then we'll reschedule for for twenty twenty one with that kind of um, international relationship and see where we're at then. If you've just tuned in, we're chatting about Blindside Gallery, which is located on uh, at Room 14, Level 7 of the Nicholas Building, 37 Swanson Street, Melbourne. Uh, uh, reopened as of yesterday, the 1st of July, uh, and the current exhibitions are showing through until the 18th of July. Just before we, I let you go, Martina, I also wanted to acknowledge that I believe you've got a call-out at the moment for uh, mm. people get, to get involved with your emerging curator mentorship program. Thanks for that. Yes, um, Kyla McFarlane is um, going to be the mentor, the curatorial mentor. Kyla's at the Ian Potter Museum of Art. Um, and so the opportunity is for, for anybody who uh, considers themselves an emerging curator to work in, in collaboration with the mentor to develop an exhibition project for Blindside in December. Um, look, that exhibition project may uh, happen in the space, but it may um, you know, end up being some kind of digital publication that's all open for discussion. So um, any questions, please email info at blindside. .org.au and, and have it or call and have a chat with me. Um, the application is online if you go to the apply page and they close 24th of July. And we've got another application um, opportunity for artists for um, a First Nations writing program, which we've um, put together in partnership with Free Association and that's opened um, until 17th of July if people are interested. Um, and then, of course, forthcoming will be... Um, applications for our summer studio residency program, which happens over the December-January period. Um, uh, So that'll probably come out um, mid to end of October. For more information about all the opportunities being offered by Blindside, jump online, www.blindside.org.au. 
Blindside has reopened to the public as of yesterday. It's open Tuesdays to Saturdays from midday until 6pm uh, and is located at Room 14, Level 7, the Nicholas Building, 37 Swanson Street, Melbourne, uh, and is accessible via lift from the Swanson Street entrance to the Nicholas Building. That website again, www.blindside.org.au. Martina Copley, many thanks for joining us here on Triple R. Thanks for your support, your continued support on Triple R. It's yeah, an absolute much appreciated. Triple R. We're going to talk now about the relationship between music and emotion and music and image. Why is it that when you watch a film, the music enriches the emotion of the film as opposed to watching, for example, a silent movie with the sound off? Dr. Darren Verhagen is the Senior Sound Design Lecturer um, for RMIT's Bachelor of Design Digital Media course and joins us on the line to talk about a project which highlights the relationship between sound and the moving image. Darren, a very good morning to you. Morning, Richard. Now, you're a man of many talents because uh, you're also the man behind the uh, outfit Shinjuku Thief, who've done some fascinating soundtracks and albums, and you've also worked for theatre and creating soundtracks for theatre companies around the country, including the MTC. So why are you so interested in sound and noise? Um, I I think a lot of it just came from uh, being a a soundtrack composer and and doing scores for for theatre and contemporary dance and just realising the incredible amount of power you've got as a a soundtrack composer or a sound designer. And and more and more, once I started um, lecturing at RMIT, um, just working intuitively was no longer really an option. I had to really try and interrogate the mechanics of, of why we respond the way we do to... Um, this kind of stimuli. Um, and there were a couple of productions in particular where I realised that there, there was one melody that I wrote for a, um, an MTC show um, where I realised that if I inserted 0.4 of a second before of silence before the 14th note in the 16-note phrase, um, I could get 25% more people in the audience to cry um, than when I hadn't added that extra little bit of, of silence. And so that, that was a fascinating kind of point where I was exploring something at an intuitive level, but then I just realised how Pavlovian we are when it comes to responding to sound, um, and so I'd start uh, going down the rabbit hole of trying to better understand why. I'm curious to know how you can have that statistic about making more people cry, but yes. Uh, that was um, me having fun in previews and just watching audiences. Great. Now, the project that you're uh, that you're here to discuss specifically today is, I guess, has grown out of the fact that um, RMIT is Acme's major research partner. Acme being the Australian Centre for the Moving Image for people who are unfamiliar with that particular acronym. So there's a, a a partnership that's been established since 2016 and strengthened in 2019. And Acme have let you had fun with some of their online imagery. Yeah, they were incredibly open. Like, um, as uh, a lot of public institutions were getting shut down, I became more and more um, dismayed, if you like, at, at how um, a lot of these institutions were engaging with the public in an online kind of way. And so I approached a few of them just to see whether they'd be interested in a more playful approach to dealing with their archives. And Acme couldn't have been more supportive. And so they've, they've given us a lot of in-kind support. Uh, with rights clearances and, and all that kind of thing, and were completely open to whatever I wanted to do. So the end result ended up being uh, a lot of gleeful fun. 
Now, remixing Acme, let's talk about how you approach a remix, both from a visual sense, because looking at uh, the videos that are online uh, on uh, Acme's YouTube channel, Salsa Catastrophe and Kick Drum Mayhem, let's talk about Sol Salsa C Catastrophe, which is mixing up uh, kind of both orally and visually a range of ideas. The the films that you've had access to, some of them appear to be, what, 1950s, those kind of warning about kind of drink driving, drug driving, chaos on the roads kind of, uh, kind of films. But also it looks like there's a little bit of, is it Homicide that's in there? One of the old Australian cop shows from the 60s. Uh, it, it looks like it, um, but it, it's actually all from from a, uh, a particular um, 1958 film called Car Stealers, uh, which was funded by the Australian police, uh, so Victorian police, and also um, the uh, Victorian one of the Victorian car insurers. Uh, and essentially, what they were suggesting was that there was this inevitable relationship between um, a, a rock and roll kind of uh, lifestyle of the youth and um, and teenage um, crime uh, sprees in relation to car thefts. Um, and so all of that footage was taken from, from that particular work. I, I love the idea of kind of rock and roll inspiring juvenile delinquency. It's so <laughs> of the period. But then that idea in itself is then a fascinating kind of avenue to, to springboard off creatively when you're thinking about the interplay between sound and image. If, if rock and roll inspires car theft amongst juvenile delinquents, what's the music you've created going to do? Um, good question. I mean, the, the interesting thing about these projects was that they each of the, the tracks or each of the videos started off with um, a musical idea, um, and it was then the pairing of that musical idea with the footage that sort of like formed the, the basis for the relationship. And then a lot of the, the collaboration uh, with my video editors, A.U. Lee, and my sound designer, um, Adam Hunt, was all about just us trying to grapple with what the mechanics of that relationship were, both at a conceptual level, um, but also at a structural level. And so one of the, the concerns that I had with um, the, the material from that 1958 um, Film was that um, because it it, it it already is setting itself up for parody, and the piece of music that I was working with was something that I've been writing, which was inspired by kind of salsa and, and Cuban music, and it has a quite a, a gleeful kind of feel to it. And so, a lot of what we had to do was to try and get some better sort of balance between um, that sense of fun and playfulness and something a little bit darker, just to counterweight it a bit. Um, and so, because the music was so upbeat and light. Um, we then zoned in on some of the, the heavier kinds of imagery that they were using um, in, in the video. What, let's come back to the, the videos in a moment because I want to kind of interrogate the question a little bit more of kind of why sound is such uh, a visceral medium to work with. Because uh, whether you're working uh, on, with these kind of digital projects online, whether you're working with theatre, whether you're working as a recording artist creating kind of uh, albums like uh, uh, The Witch's Hammer and The Witch's Haven that you put out back in the 90s, uh, sound obviously creates an enormously emotional response in listeners. And that's something that can be exploited, it can be played with. But why does sound impact so dramatically? Um, given that you've, as you said earlier, you've gone from working instinctively to working more academically in a, in a more structured way. Have you studied the reasons why sound creates such strong emotional impacts and responses in, in people's brains? Yeah, I guess that there are two kind of main things that I've, I've focused on. And, and one is just the the extent to which we tend to process sound um, quite intuitively and a lot of the time quite emotionally. 
Um, but when it comes to the, the psychology of music, um, that was something that I, I became really quite sort of fascinated in um, as to just, you know, how you could set up particular sorts of relationships which would lead to certain emotions. Um, and I guess, you know, in, in my early research, I was, I was looking for these, these magic bullets uh, where we could have the same kind of response from, from everyone because, you know, as, as, say, a soundtrack composer, you, a lot of the time that's part of the agenda. It's like, you know, let's make everyone sad here, let's make everyone happy here. Um, and then the, the more I started researching this and the more tests we were doing um, with, you know, biometrics and all that kind of stuff, um, the, the more I was just realising that the level of, of subjective variability. Um, and so, you know, what will make one person cry won't necessarily make the next person cry. Um, and I think, you know, the, the same thing applies for these two videos that we've now got up with Acme, because uh, I, I find them absolutely hysterical, um, but I, I know other people that have found them quite sort of terrifying and really disturbing. And so that, that raises some really interesting kinds of questions about sort of like, you know, black humour and comedy um, and just how you respond to things. Um, but the, the other thing that I find really interesting is just the extent to which um, sound is, is processed so intuitively. So, you know, our ears give us a 360-degree snap, snapshot of an environment. Um, we have no control on what we're taking in, and so we will process that. Sometimes it'll be consciously, a lot of the times it's subconsciously. Um, and because of that, it, it means that, you know, you can engage in a lot of black ops as a soundtrack composer or as a sound designer just to try and manipulate certain kinds of emotional responses. But the, the issue is as soon as you have a, more of a complex relationship, say, between sound and image, um, where there might be ambiguity or there's, there's layering of, of things which don't necessarily have the same agenda, that's when you open up a certain level of, of subjectivity. And so if you think about something like um, you know, mainstream American film composing, um, a lot of the time that's all about synchronising group emotions. And so you'll have whatever's on screen, whatever's being said, aligned with whatever you're being told with the score. And a lot of the time that's not particularly interesting and it might sound a bit patronising. Um, but more and more I think there's some really interesting kinds of approaches in Hollywood soundtrack composition where it's more about layering up more interesting kinds of flavours which aren't necessarily as didactic as a John Williams kind of soundtrack. And I'm thinking of people like, um, you know, say Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross with the sorts of scores that they do. Um, and then as soon as you make it more ambiguous or more layered or sophisticated, that's when people can make it more subjectively their own rather than feeling like they're being shouted at by the composer to feel a particular kind of way. Yeah, that, uh, the, that clumsy emphasis on feel sad now or whatever it may be in a Hollywood film is, is particularly irksome, especially when it's because the editor or the director has been unable to evoke emotion, so it's left to the poor composer or sound designer to go, all oh, right, now I have to try and make the audience cry at this point in the film. Uh, but... To, just before we move on, I wanted to ask about that idea of manipulating an audience. For you as a sound designer, whether it's remixing these videos with Acme or elsewhere, um, have you ever been tempted to use, I don't know, uh, subsonics, for example, or uh, to try and, I don't know, find the infrasonic frequency, that, not the brown note, uh, for example, <laughs> which is supposed to make people... Uh, uncontrollably uh, lose, kind of have bowel motions whether they want to or not. But working, say, in the theatre or on a film soundtrack, can, would you use subsonics or infra infrasonics to try to create unease and disquiet in a listener, or is that taking the manipulation of the audience response too far? Well, I think the issue is, is more just like how effectively that can be realised in a technical sense in the cinema. 
Um, and so if, you, if you're really wanting you know, ultra-low frequencies, there's, there's the risk that you're, you're not going to get sort of the frequency response and the playback to, to deliver what you want to do. But I think, you know, even before you get to, to those more um, off-radar sorts of approaches, you can still uh, exploit those kinds of feelings with just, you know, say, really low subs or really high-frequency, you know, sine tones and that kind of thing. Um, but I think, you know, there's, there's certainly potential to, to play around with, um, you know, disorientation and disquiet even within the orbital frequency before you even move beyond that. Um, but certainly with some of my um, installation work, um, like I'm part of a collective called 20 Hertz, where we had a, an installation in ScienceWorks, um, which was essentially exploring the idea of motion sickness. Um, and as you put your hand into this uh, light well with a particular kind of soundtrack um, that was designed to make you feel sick, there was also a voiceover which was explaining the mechanics of what we were actually doing to you at the time. Um, so when, when ScienceWorks initially kind of approached us and got quite excited by it, um, they, they signed us up and it was part of a, an, an exhibition and then sort of like a few weeks into those conversations, they then started asking whether we were really wedded to the idea of the, the, the motion sickness and they were wondering whether it might be possible to um, sort of pull back on, on the, the nausea, <laughs> which is like the whole point of the, the work. Um, but yeah, so I think you know, there's certainly um, stuff that you can explore, but even within the, like, an existing kind of frequency range replicable in a, a cinema or a theatre, there's, there's a lot of room to move. Yeah. And it's great also to come back to these uh, videos, the remixing Acme project that Acme have given you so much room to move by giving you the freedom to to play with films in their collection, providing you with organising copyright clearance and so so forth for you, as opposed to being very very protective and saying no, you must treat these films with kind of the the reverence with which they deserve. Yeah, and that was the thing that, that I was really impressed with, just the the extent of, of their enthusiasm about treating. Um, it is a living archive, so something that can be engaged with um, at a creative level and then as a result sort of like, you know, encouraging other people to do the same kind of thing. So they, they couldn't have been more enthusiastic, which has been great. So there's two videos up online on the uh, Australian Centre for the Moving Image YouTube channel, Salsa Catastrophe and Kick Drum Mayhem. We're going to listen to your music for Salsa Catastrophe, uh, which will give people just, I guess, a, an audio taste of what's in store. But for the full experience, go to YouTube and search for the Australian Centre for the Moving Image channel uh, and check out what is in store. I've been chatting with Darren Verhagen about the remixing Acme project and so much more. Darren, it's been a pleasure chatting. Thanks very much, Richard. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. 